<clears throat> yeah, in, in, uh, in due time, we'll be hearing from, uh, from the rest of these seven brothers and sisters. So uh, we have that uh, certainly to look forward to. So, um, yeah, part of what we do in, in these membership testimonies is not only uh, hear how our church is being a blessing and encouraging other people, but it also helps us to get to know uh, those uh, with whom, alongside whom, we are building and repairing the walls together. So um, in the weeks to come, we'll be hearing uh, from these brothers and sisters. Uh, again, as uh, our brother Eugene mentioned in, in the uh, announcements and introduction, uh, last week Pastor Daniel and I were uh, in Houston, Texas for a conference. Our denomination, the PCUSA, um, has different gatherings for different groups of people. And so we were in Houston for the gathering of uh, Korean-American uh, Korean American pastors, English-speaking next-generation pastors, um, 400 churches within the denomination um, that are Korean, and some of them have uh, English-speaking pastors like us. And so we were there um, learning, fellowship, equipping, and all of that stuff. Um, really good time. A couple speakers um, who were there, um, the theme was on our pastoral identity, like who are we as pastors? What is our mission in the world? Uh, one of the speakers, he, uh, actually a couple of them shared some pretty alarming things. And if I could share these... Uh, with you for, uh, by way of introduction to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, one of the speakers cited research from different, uh, different think tanks and research groups, and his research said that 90%, okay, 90% of pastors okay, will leave the ministry before they retire. In other words, you think of 10 pastors, okay? You think of 10 pastors, you, you can start thinking them in your head. If the numbers hold true, out of 10 pastors, only one of them will retire as a pastor. The other nine of them will leave the ministry, will do something else, they'll go into vinyl repair, they'll go into coffee sales, they'll go into uh, computer technicians, whatever it is, they'll do something other than ministry for the remainder of their days, there's another, <clears throat> another study that said that 80% of seminary graduates, okay, seminary is where you go to get trained as a pastor, 80% of seminary graduates will be out of pastoral ministry within five years of graduating. 80, so, so four out of every five people who go to seminary and begin serving in churches, out of five people, four of them will be out of ministry within five years. Those are crazy numbers. A lot of different reasons why. The next speaker came up, and, and I don't believe he heard that first message, but independent of each other, he said the same thing, and particularly in a Korean-American context. He said when he went to seminary in the 80s, he was one of the first what you call English ministry pastors of a Korean-American church. Uh, hundreds of seminary graduates, or at any point in time at Princeton Seminary, Biblical Seminary, Fuller Seminary, wherever it might be, there were hundreds of Korean-American pastors, but now 30 years later, he said maybe 10% of them, same numbers, maybe 10% of them are still active in ministry. That means that for many people, boy, you follow this trajectory into the future. Out of every 10 pastors, only one of them is going to remain in 15 years or so. That means there's going to be a lot of churches that don't have pastors. That's the sad reality. So what am I saying? I think there's a lot of things that you could think. Uh, one, we have to take care of our pastors well, like you really do. And I'm not just saying this because I am. I think we do a good job here. 
But wherever you go, wherever you go, you need to care for your people or else they're not going to make it. That's my burden as I, uh, so I'm one of the, the, the overseers of this conference. Um, that's my burden because I have conversations year after year. been doing this for about four years now. Year after year, I have conversations with people. One dude, uh, in, well, I shouldn't say where he's from, but one, he's, about to, he's about to throw in the towel because his wife is being put through the ringer right now because she doesn't know where to sit as a pastor's wife, and she gets railed and reamed in her church. Another guy, he's many, uh, multiple children, is about to go on food stamps. Major city, major church, about to go on food stamps because he's not bringing home enough money to care for and put food on the table. This is a very sad thing. It's a very sad thing, and I think about the reality that Many pastors start the job, but not many finish. And it's sad, and it breaks my heart. Another speaker has been in the same church for 30 years. His church, um, you'll, you'll know uh, his church. Many of our missionaries come from there. I ask him to come to speak, two reasons. One, because I want to hang out with him, and I want to talk to him, and I want to learn from him, but also because I want someone like him to tell people like us, Hey, keep going. Don't quit. Okay, don't quit. Don't quit. Because it's, it's easy to just throw in the towel. I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about people in general. Like, it's one thing. We have, we have middle schoolers who love Jesus. But they've been walking with Jesus for at most, what, 10 years? For a middle schooler to love Jesus is one thing. I would get even more excited if that middle schooler is still loving Jesus when they're in high school because not a lot of them make it through. And if they do, then I'll be excited when they're following Jesus when they're in college. But a college student who's on fire for Jesus is one thing. Wait till they become a single person and they start working. Because many a great worker of God has been derailed because of the love of money. And no longer serve with the love and the passion that they once did in their youth. Don't tell me that I love Jesus when you're in college. That's great. But show me when you're 20, when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 60. Show me then that you love Jesus because a lot of people start the race. But not a lot of people finish. It's pastors, it's church, it's people in general. That's why we have so many half-started projects and projects that we don't finish. We have so many books that we started, read one, two, three chapters of, but can't get through them. That's why the average Worker right now. Okay, check this out. The average worker changes careers, I think it's 4.8 times in their lifetime. I'm not, I, I'm not talking about change jobs, but you change your career 4.8 times from the time you're in high school to the time you get to your last career. The average person changes careers 4.8 times. And we're good at starting things, y'all, but we're not very good at finishing. And my burden is we got to get there to the finish line together. That's my burden as your pastor. I don't want to see you do well for five years, ten years, and then whatever happens uh, when we get to judgment day, you're like, yeah, I've been to church for 40 years or 30 years. doesn't matter how well you do certain things for a season of life. It's to finish the race and to finish the mission and to finish the task. That's the burden that we ought to have, and that's the burden that I have, not just for my people here but for pastors in our denomination, for people all around that we would finish the race that God has called out for us 
to do. How do we do that? Nehemiah 6 is going to tell us a little bit of the construction of its completion of the walls uh, in Jerusalem. But again, just to kind of get us up to speed, last week we saw as the walls were being rebuilt, we got to about halfway, 20 out of 40 feet high, and then opposition from within came. And so Nehemiah said, we've got to stop this project for a little bit in order to deal with the walls that have been erected within the people of God. And once we deal with that, then we can go back to rebuilding. And as Nehemiah rebukes and calls out the oppressors, their response is the response of the harvesters. We will do as you say. Amen? That's right. And so they did that. They finished the walls, got it up to 40 feet high. It's done. And then we pick up in chapter 6. And the burden here, the calling here is how do we finish? How do we not only repair one part of the wall, but how do we become rebuilders for life? How do you make it through to the end so that the day you die is the day that you love Jesus more than any other day in your life? And that you're not on the race of life, sidelined somewhere uh, on the side of the road while people pass by. How do you know, how, do you, how can you be faithful until the very end? That's what Nehemiah 6 is dealing with. I'm going to read Nehemiah 6 verses 1 uh, through 4, and then uh, I'm going to pause and give a, uh, a thought and then read a little bit more and then uh, give the, the last couple of thoughts. Nehemiah 6 verse 1, this is the Word of God. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah... Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. This is God's word, and we'll continue on with it. How do we run the race and finish the task of rebuilding that God has given to us? Three thoughts. Here's the first one. Remember that God has called you to do a great work. Can you Turn to the person next to you and say, God has called you to do a great work. Guys, get this. If you don't believe this, then you're going to be distracted and you'll come off the rebuilding project. You will. I guarantee you will if you don't think that what you're doing is great. So Nehemiah finishes this project. It's going to take 52 days to finish. In fact, um, some years ago, they found the remains of Nehemiah's walls. It took 52 days to make, and, and, and historians and archaeologists are saying, this ain't that great a construction. It's not that big a deal. It's not that great. It's two and a half miles around. It's not the Great Wall of China. It's not this massive edifice. It took 52 days with the help of God to make, so, you know, you could take it for what it's worth. But he finishes these walls in 52 days, and as he's almost done, the gates had not yet been put in place. You could have a, a wall, but if there's no gate, then the enemies can still penetrate. So he's finishing up, the, the, putting on the last touches, and in that moment, Sanballat and Geshem, uh, Tobiah, they come just as they've been doing in the past, and they say, Nehemiah, come, let's have a little party in the plains of Ono. Nehemiah, knowing their heart, says, oh no, I'm not going with you 
to Ono. And they say, why not? He says, I don't want to go because I know your plan. And he says, I'm not going to go because I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go with you. There will be people, there will be things, there will be circumstances that constantly distract you from the work to which God has called you to do. You're a house church leader. You are a a cleaning ministry member. You are a potential VBS teacher. Whatever it is that you do, you have a great work that God has called you to do. And it says, four times they came at me with the same message. You know people like that? You want to uh, you wanna go to SNF because you really have a burden to love on your younger students, to love them, to encourage them. And someone says, hey, let's go watch this movie. Let's go watch uh, Avengers or let's go watch uh, the next Avengers, <laughs> whatever movie it is. Let's go watch something. And you say, no, I don't want to go. I, I'm, I'm going to go to church. They ask you again. They send someone else to text you. Four times they do that because they're trying to distract Nehemiah from the work that God has called him to do. And can I tell you something? You will be distracted. There will be many things that potentially distract you. But unless you believe in your heart of hearts that God has called you to a great work, you will be distracted from the work that God has called you to do. Well, that's cool, man. I'm not a praise team leader. I'm not a greeter. I'm not doing anything great. So I can be distracted. That's what some of us think. But the greatness of the task is not in what you think about the mission or what you think about the task. The greatness of the task is in the person who has called you to that work. And listen, it, for you to, uh, hey, can you give someone a ride home today? Is that a great work? Probably not. Probably no one would think, oh, that's a great work. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a really big deal. No one's going to think that. But if someone says to you, hey, I, there's this new guy who came to church today. I want you to take him home. Can you do that? If you don't think it's a big deal and someone says, hey, well, let's go eat at, uh, let's go eat at Chipotle today, you might think, oh, you know what, I can't take this guy home because I've got to go eat with these people. You'll be distracted from that work because you don't think that's a great work. But what if that person, what if that new person who came to church today was LeBron James or Justin Bieber or Katy Perry or you, whoever it is that you think is such a great person and they say to you, hey, can you take this person home? All of a sudden, whatever anybody sa- says cannot distract you from the work to which you've been called because you realize it's not about what I'm doing. It's the person for whom I'm doing it that makes it a great work. And a lot of us will quit the work that God has called us to do, whether it's teaching Awana, whether it's going for VBS, whether it's serving on praise team, whether it's passing out flowers to the mothers here on Mother's Day. You will leave and abandon the rebuilding work of God in your life because you, quite frankly, don't think that it's all that important. And God is saying, you need to remember that I have called you to do a great work. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? <clears throat> when I was younger, I took uh, piano lessons. I um, didn't like it very much. But I took piano lessons, and my teacher, his name was Barry Stoner, National Symphony Orchestra. We'd see him on TV later. Like, I would, I would realize what a great teacher he was. But while he was teaching me, I just, man, I was a jerk. I would, like, skip out on, on, on lessons and stuff, and my brother would have to do an hour. But there'd be times when I would, when I would show up and go to piano lessons, 
and I would do this piece. You know, it's like so, to me, it's like so dumb and da 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 my teacher would look at me, and he would say, that was great. He would put out his hand, and I would give him a high five. He would take out this pencil, and at the top of the sheet, he would put three stars or four stars or five stars, and he would write excellent work. And in my mind, I'd be thinking, that's not that good. But every time he would say, great job, great work, I would think to myself, maybe, maybe what I'm doing really is pretty great. He just, he would say to me, you know what, you have the longest fingers. You could be the best piano player in the world. You could be so good at piano if you apply yourself. You've got a good mind. You can't sing worth anything, but you've got long fingers, and you could be a great piano player if you would put your mind to it. And I think what he was doing was he was constantly trying to remind me that there's a great work that you've been called to, and you can do it. We need to be reminded that whatever it is that God has called you and me to do, some of you, your work is just, hey, you know what? I don't think I could do much, but I could scrub floors. And, and, and if that's what God calls me to do, I'm going to do that the best of my ability. Other people, that work is, for, for some of you, it's, it's helping people know where they ought to park. For some people, we got somebody who goes around in between our Alpha and Omega worship services here, and he just straightens out the chairs. And I always say, thank you. You are doing a great job straightening out those chairs because he reckons and he realizes that as long as I'm doing this for God, this is a great work that I've been called to. Do you know? Do you know that if God calls you to something, a commission from a king, if your commission from a king is you hold my water, that's a great work that you've been called to. If your commission is to be the wine taster for the king to make sure that he doesn't he doesn't get poisoned and die. That's a great work that you've been called to. Some of you, the one thing you've been called to right now is to be a parent, and that's your job. That's your role. That's it. You do that work that God has called you to the best of your ability, not because the kids, yeah, that's part of it, but because you're representing the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You may not be doing what you want to do, but whatever God has placed in front of you, that's your calling right now. It's a great task to which you've been called. You do that with all of your heart. This week, I spent time with, with my pastoral mentor. His name is Pastor Min. He's out in, in, in Illinois. His church has, uh, again, for 28 years, he's been faithfully serving there. He's been ministering. Uh, half of the missionaries that we support have come out from his church. Where all the numbers are saying 9 out of 10 pastors are leaving, his church is filling in the gap. Literally hundreds of pastors and missionaries in his 30 years there have come out and gone into the mission field. Guys like uh, our, our folks in Turkey, our folks in Jordan, our folks in Myanmar, uh, people all around the world uh, in Vietnam serving faithfully. They've come out of his church. He said when he was a, <coughs> a middle school student, he came from Korea, uh, didn't speak any English, uh, grew up in New York, gave his life to the Lord then. And as a middle school student in New York City, he would go to his youth group meetings, and at the time, being at the age that he was in the early 80s, there weren't such thing as English-speaking youth groups. It was just Korean churches, and then a group of people who spoke English, so they would do whatever they would do. If they had an English-speaking leader, then they would uh, maybe teach them a couple songs, and what they would do in their youth group is they would prepare things for Sunday school for the children who would come the next day on Sunday. 
And so he said, that, that's what I thought youth group was. And so my job was taking these craft booklets, coloring books, and I would staple them. And he said, that's what we did during our youth group meetings. And he said, I loved stapling these things because God was the one for whom I was doing it. Then about six, seven years ago, he wrote this as he thought back uh, in his life. He said, when I was a junior high student, as a youth group member, I was happy stapling Sunday school material for the church all day Saturday because I felt so privileged to staple for the Lord. When I was a college student, I was the first to come to church and the last to leave, setting up the chairs and cleaning the floor because I felt so privileged to set up chairs for the Lord. When I became a pastor, I sit and meditate and prepare sermons. I'm on my knees praying for people because I feel the indescribable sense of privilege to be able to feed his people for the Lord. When I feel the potential for my heart to be proud, I test it. And I always ask this question, will I still be thankful to staple for the Lord? When my time is done, as I lie on my deathbed, I want to be able to say what a privilege it was while I was alive to have been able to have the chance to staple for the Lord. Would you be willing to staple for the Lord? Is that a great enough work for you? Or do you need to be recognized? Do you need to have a bigger position? Do you need people to see the things that you do? Do you need to be able to see the impact that you're having in the lives of people? Whatever God has called you to do, that is a great work for God. Remember that so that you're not distracted from the calling that God has for you. That's the first thing. The second thing we see is that pray for stronger hands, not for an easier life. Verse 5. <clears throat> then the fifth time, Senbalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are planning to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. You've even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to King Artaxerxes. We'll get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. He could have said something else that it came out of. But he said, out of your head. They're all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Four times, Sanballat, Geshem, Tobiah try to get Nehemiah to abandon the rebuilding project so they might kill him. He doesn't. He doesn't budge because he knows he's been called to a great mission. Fifth time they send him, and they say, you know what? Uh, everybody's saying this. Isn't this the worst thing you hear? Everybody's saying this. Like this as a pastor makes me so angry. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's saying this. Everybody complain about that. 
That's what they're saying to Nehemiah. Everybody's saying, the reason you're doing this, not for the glory of God, because you want to be king. Like the lion king. You just want to be king. That's what they're saying to him. And they write it in this letter that is unsealed so that as it's being distributed, everybody can open up and read it so that the gossip can spread faster than a lie on social media. And they're trying to get Nehemiah to take the bait. It says, listen, Artaxerxes is going to hear, and you know that there's no fury like a Persian king who's been spurned. Come on, we got to talk about this in order that we might come up with a solution for this situation here. And Nehemiah knows better. He says, none of this is true, and then he prays. What do you do? What do you do when something confronts you that makes you afraid? that the enemy brings in order to make you afraid. Hey, don't do that. You, if you, man, you do that, you ain't ever going to get married if you get so busy for living for Jesus that way. Nobody's going to want to marry somebody like that, and they try to make you afraid. What do you do? Don't do that. Don't get too fired up for Jesus because then oh, your, uh, your coworkers, you know what they're saying. You're not going to get promoted for that position. You ain't going to get into school. You need a better resume than to say that you are on the student leadership team at church. You need to go do all these other things. What is it that you do when temptation to fear comes and pushes you towards a path of least resistance? What do you do? Because this is what the enemies are trying to make them do. Abandon the project of God to take the path of least resistance, to go the easy way. Nehemiah does what he's been doing the entire time. He prays because that's what he does, but he does not pray for this to disappear. Sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we need to pray for situations to change. Yeah, we definitely do. We pray for sick people to get better. We pray for our sickness to be healed. We pray for our financial situation to get better. We pray for our family members to get better when they're, when they're causing trouble. But here in this particular place, Nehemiah doesn't pray for an easier life. He says, now, God, I pray, strengthen my hands. Make me stronger. Don't give my, me an easier life. Why? You know, for me, when life gets hard, this is what I pray. Lord, make my life easier. Those people that are, that are making, uh, making uh, my life miserable, uh, help them to... Die would be too hard a word. Help them to go somewhere else. Lord, help them to move. Help them to just feel like, you know what? Yeah, I don't like this pastor. I'm going to go. Lord, kids are not sleeping well. Help them to sleep better. God, help them to sleep better. And if they're not sleeping well, I'm not sleeping well, so help me to be able to get some rest. Lord, ministry at church has been difficult these past few weeks. Uh, help it to get easier. And help those evil people to get it. Help them to figure it out. Help them to fall in love with Jesus. Okay, to stop being uh, haters. Lord, change them. And a lot of times, God doesn't seem to want to answer those prayers. What's going on? Begin to realize that God challenges my heart and says, you know what, son? You've been praying for an easier life, but I want you to pray for stronger hands. Why? Didn't you ask one day, that you wanted to be used by God? How much do you want to be used by me? You want to be used a lot by me? Then you got to get strong for me. You want to be used a little? Then yeah, you can have an easy life. 
and take the path of least resistance. But God is always, 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 whatever it is we're doing right now, preparing us for something else in the future that will require us to be strong for the task. God will always match a person's calling to that person's character and Christ-likeness because what happens when someone gets a call that is too big for their britches, there's pain all around. There's hardship all around. There's heartbreak all around. And a lot of people are being put into positions that's too big for them because they've taken the path of least resistance and sought an easier life rather than for stronger hands. What about you? Do you want to be used by God? Everything in your life, every opportunity to be used is preparing you, is your weight lifting for something to come in the future. Everything is. Remember, here's why we want it, though. Because there was a time when living for God was easy. You just show up at church. You didn't even pray. You didn't even know you're supposed to pray. You just show up at church, and a song makes you cry, and it moves you. And you get blessed by the Word of God, and you're like, man, I love you, Jesus. It was so easy. And all of a sudden, one day, over a period of time, it started getting harder. Like, man, my heart doesn't, it's not the same anymore. And then someone says, hey, let's come to prayer meeting. Let's pray for your heart. Because you're beginning to realize that as a baby, we're spoon-fed. But as we grow, we need to start feeding ourselves. This is what it means to grow stronger. So what it means to grow stronger. If you're going through difficult times that prayer alone hasn't been able to knock these things away, can I submit to you what Nehemiah says? God is strengthening your hands to do a greater work in the future that you have no idea what it might be right now. Everything is preparing you. But you want it easy because that's the way it used to be. But God is saying, now, guys, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up as a church. Things that are easy for us, it may not be so easy. We got to grow up because God wants to do greater things through us. We got to grow up. We got to mature. We got to take that next step of faith. We can't sit back and, and ride the bus like Chris was talking about. We got to be the ones pushing because we got to get strong. Do you remember this? I saw part of this movie, The Black Panther, on the way home from, uh, from <laughs> Houston. And uh, in my mind, I was like, oh my gosh. I've been called to a great task. I need to preach the word on Sunday. But here comes the distraction of the Black Panther. So uh, I'll only watch an hour of it because this is sermon prep here. And so here's where the sermon prep comes in. The dude who becomes king, uh, if you haven't seen it, I haven't seen the last hour of it, so I'm not going to spoil anything. But the guy who becomes king, uh, I think his name is Eric, right? He's like the uh, guy that they think is an American guy, but he's really Wakandan. So this guy, Eric... <laughs> becomes king, and the king before him is talking, he has this like, this weird out moment where he's talking to his dad, who is a former king, and the dad is dead now, and so he says to his dad, I'm not ready for this, I'm not ready for this, and his dad says, was not all of life preparing you for this, and he's still kind of scared, and he gets nervous, and then in the moment of battle, he ends up getting thrown over a cliff, and so it's a sad moment, and I was crying, but the new king comes up and the new king says, all of my life, all of my life, he has like uh, all these like 
tattoos on him, like welts coming out of his body, meaning like the people that he disposed of in war. So like Afghanistan, Iraq, and all these different places. These are the people that I, uh, I sent into their eternal destiny. And so he's got all of these things, and he says, every one of these, all of my life, prepared me for this day for me to become the king. I was like, yeah, this is point two of my sermon. Yeah. So all of life is preparing us for something. Don't pray for an easier life. Pray for stronger hands. That's the second thing. And then the last thing that you see, last thing that we see, always choose the path of obedience even when it's costly. Always choose the path of obedience. Okay, verse 10, one day, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let's meet in the house of God inside the temple and let's close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I'll not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he'd prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. So these things didn't work. The efforts to distract Nehemiah from the rebuilding project didn't work. And so Sanballat Tobiah hired this cat to be a false prophet. And he shut in at his home because this is what prophets do. They go and they presumably hear a message from God. So here is this guy, Shemaiah. And he comes to Nehemiah and he says, I got a message from God. You're going to die tonight. The only place you can hide is you got to go into the temple. And so Nehemiah hears this, and he recognizes that potentially my life is on the line. And what this false prophet is saying, the only place you can go is into the temple. And Nehemiah's response, verse 11, should a man like me run away, or should one like me go, inside, go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Why? Because Nehemiah knew the word of God. The word of God said, only a priest can enter into the temple of God. And even if it meant that my life is in danger, I will not disobey the word of God. I will choose to obey God even if it costs me my life. Then in verse 12, he recognized, he said, I realize that God had not sent him, but that had been, uh, he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. How did he know that God had not sent him? Because no prophet will speak against the clear teaching of the Word of God. Right? The Word of God revealed. said, you cannot go into the temple unless you're a priest. And Nehemiah understood that. So he knew that this man was not a man of God. And even so, the call of God remains in our lives. Will you obey God even when it's costly? Because if you won't, if you only obey God when it's easy, then when distraction and hardship and challenge comes, you're going to waylay off the path that God has called you to. And he's saying, 
we need to remain on a path of obedience always, always. If you disobey, there are haters out there, there are enemies out there who want to take your sin to discredit the good name of God in your life. He says, you've got to remain obedient no matter what the cost. Because the glory of God, we talked about last week, is at stake amongst the unbelievers in the world through your actions. Do you understand this, boyfriend, girlfriend? Your actions will represent God to a world out there. How you relate to people, how you treat people, how you talk to people. I remember I was at a, at a wedding somewhat recently, and uh, man, I, I, this, is, this is really bad of me. But there was a group of people who came in, and they looked like gangsters. They looked like thugs. One guy really, like, played the part sitting next to Olive. And then uh, there was a, a few seats in the, in the pew next to me. And I was like, man, I really hope those guys don't sit next to me because then I have to talk to them. I won't talk to anybody. I just want to enjoy this wedding. These guys sat down next to me. I was like, oh, man. And then they got, like, real close to me. So I was like, man, I just, I want to give them, I want to be mean. I just want to not talk to them. I'm just going to ignore them. I just, I didn't, I didn't want to engage people that day. So ultimately I felt like, man, it, like everyone is talking to everybody else. I, at least I got to introduce myself. So I looked over at this guy. He looked like a gangster. He looked like one of those bad guys from James Bond movie. So I looked over and I was like, hey, I'm DL. And he said, my name is whatever, whatever. And then this gangster, Jaws-looking guy from James Bond says, Pastor DL? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, I listen to your podcast all the time. My friend, blah, 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 told me about you. I was like, are you serious? And then I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm such a jerk. Like, I'm such a jerk. Like, so easy for me to turn on and turn off my pastor game, to turn on and turn off my obedience game. Like, I could have acted like a jerk and it would have discouraged. He said, hey, everybody, don't listen to this guy. Like, he don't practice what he preach. He thought I was Jaws from James Bond. Get that, man. I don't even look. Because when we choose to obey, when it's convenient to obey, there are people who are watching. And that might discredit the name of God in our lives. Will you obey God no matter who's watching, even if no one's watching, even if it's costly? When our friend, uh, our friend in, in, in Asia who was forcibly kicked out of the country, um, they'll be here next week and they're going to share a little bit about what that journey was like. But when he was captured by the police in his country, his five children saw him their daddy being taken away. Wife saw daddy being taken away. They said, he'll have his phone and he'll be home tonight. You'll be able to contact him. Wife was sending frantic emails for prayer. He hasn't been released tonight. It's gone on to the next day. He's not answering his phone. We don't know what's happening. As Elijah and I were praying for him, I didn't tell Elijah everything as we were praying. I was just praying. And after we prayed, Elijah said, Daddy, why is uncle taken by the policeman? That because in the country where he lives, the police don't like when you tell people about Jesus. And so they took him. And Elijah said, well, at least they took him for doing something good, not something bad. He was doing something good, 
obeying the will of the Father to abandon everything to go to a foreign nation where four of his five children will be born in a place where nobody looks like them. He's willing to obey even when it costs everything. Not just for him, but for his children and his wife. Listen, guys, every child of God, every child of God has been called to three things, to be prepared for three things. We need to be ready to pack and go wherever God wants us to go. We need to be ready to preach whenever God calls us to preach, and we need to be ready to perish. We're not guaranteed another day. Be ready to move. Be ready with a message. Be ready for martyrdom at any point in our lives. Will you obey God even when the cost is our life. We won't obey God when our lives are on the line if we're not willing to obey God when our lives are not on the line. Some of us say, you know what, I'll I'll follow God. If he just calls me, if he makes it clear to me that I'm supposed to be a missionary and go to Africa, I'll go. If God makes it clear to me that I'm supposed to be a missionary in China, I'll go. I'm just waiting on God to tell me where to go. Can I tell you something? God will not reveal to you the concealed will of God if you're not first living out the revealed will of God. He's made it clear in here how we're supposed to live. And if you're not faithfully doing that, then he's under no obligation to tell you the next step for you. If you ain't taking step one, why should he tell you step two? He says step one is clear. Here it is. Live it out. Be faithful. Live in obedience to me. And then I'll show you what the next step is. But until then, you got to grow in order that you might live the kind of life that I've called you to live. God's not, you're not waiting on God. God's the one waiting on us. In order that as we live in obedience, (coughs) he'll show us the next step to take. That's how God works. Because at the end of the day, he doesn't want us to start the job. He wants us to finish it. And the course of life, the marathon of life, is strewn with people that you know and I know who said, I will give everything for you, Jesus. But who've taken off their running shoes and are just sitting, watching, while the rest of the race goes by, no longer faithfully serving the Lord, walking with him, or going for the gold the way that God called us to. In 1968, there was an Olympic Games held in Mexico City in the summer. And there were 93 runners who were competing for the gold medal in the marathon. And the little African nation of Tanzania sent a man named John Stephen Akari to try to become the first medal winner in Tanzanian Olympic history. His event was the marathon along with 92 other people. The race started... Um, Mexico City, apparently the elevation is altitude is pretty high, and so uh, a lot of people were messed up by that. And at some point through the race, uh, in the, within the first half of the race, there was an 18-person pileup. Uh, John Stephen Akari bruised his shoulder, and he busted his kneecap, was bleeding everywhere. 18 people had to withdraw from the marathon their lifelong ambition. The medics obviously told him that he should withdraw also, but he kept on going. He kept on running. 26.2 miles, the last half of which he ran with a broken kneecap, running, walking, bleeding, 
And the announcers, as they were announcing the Olympic Games, were saying, an unseen voice from within calls him to carry on, and carry on he does. Even when he was the last solitary figure in the race. The winner finished in two hours and change. Everybody else finished. Most of the stadium had left. They'd gone on to the medal ceremony. The broadcasters were all, the TV stations were all showing that uh, medal ceremony when there was news that one man had not yet finished and he was entering into the stadium. And this African man who came from thousands of miles away, limping through, beaten, bloodied, bandaged up, crossing the finish line. Only a handful of people were there to cheer him as he finished the race. But the broadcasters were notified, and they walked over to where he was. And they said, 18 other people quit 13 miles ago. But you're still going. Why'd you keep on going? He said, because my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And so finish the race, he did. And so it was with Nehemiah. It says in verse 16, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. The end of verse 16, it says, they knew, they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. You get to the end of your life, race, and you cross the finish line. Because you remember that I've been called to a great work. Because you don't pray and ask God for an easier life, but you pray for stronger hands and you obey God even when it costs you. When you get to the end, people will realize, man, they only did it because of God. And they see God through you, just as they did in Nehemiah. Because in Nehemiah, we see a picture of our Savior Jesus who understood that when temptations came his way, he would not be distracted because he knew that he has been called to a great work. To die on a cross? How is that great? Because he knew the one for whom he would go to that cross. He prayed not for an easier life, but he prayed, strengthen me, not my will, but your will be done, as he drank the cup of insane and eternal, infernal and infinite wrath of God. Choosing to be obedient, even to the point of death. For whom did he run that race? He did it for you. He did it for me. In order that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter. That we would hear him say, keep on running. Keep on running until we see him face to face. Let's not just run. Let's not just start. Let's finish the race. Let's pray. Let's pray. In what way have you not obeyed God? Are you not obeying God? Let's repent and let's turn back to the Lord God. What distracts you? How are you distracted from the mission of God, from the work of God? How have you half-heartedly engaged in the mission of God because you fail to realize its greatness and the greatness of our God? Let's repent of that. Let's renew our commitment to recognize that whatever God calls you to do is a great work because you serve a great God. And in what ways have you asked God to make life easier when God wants you to get stronger to do the work he's called you to? 
Let's pray together for a few moments right now. Just half a minute, let's pray. And then we're going to worship the Lord as we give our tithes, His tithes, and our offerings back to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've called us to run a race. It's not about us, and it's not about our glory. It's about you, and it's for you. We pray that you would strengthen us for the mission, strengthen us for the task, strengthen us in order that we might finish the race and finish the work of rebuilding, that we would echo with the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So help me, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be faithful until the very end. We thank you. We love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.